Ephesians 3 verse 20 tells us the following. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. That word think is that is beyond our comprehension. According to the power that works within us to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. We serve a God who is able to do far more than we can ask or even comprehend. We can't even in our little pea brain heads consider or imagine what God has in store for us, what he wants to call us to. What he created man for, what he created woman to experience, we can't even comprehend it. Only in, in a certain moments in our lives do we get glimpses of it when we, we read something and something great happens. He teaches us something, he shows us something. He reveals his, his love, His covering, His forgiveness. And we have those aha moments in our spiritual walk where we go, Wow! How amazing! I never knew that before. That's like a little tiny glimpse into the vastness of God's wonderful plan for us. It is overwhelming. And the Bible says we can't even imagine it. Somewhat like Reuben and Gad could not imagine what life across the Jordan was going to be like. It was good enough right where they were. You know this. We talked last week about the tribes of Reuben and the tribes of Gad, after the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, wanted to settle. They had a place that was good enough. They didn't want to cross the Jordan. They didn't want to face the tough stuff on the other side to receive the true promise, the real inheritance, what God had in store for them. And so they decided to settle just shy of the promises. And last week we talked about this. And I, I talked about let's, let's reject complacency. Let's be those who reject settling. Who reject good enough Christianity in favor of receiving the promises of God which go far beyond what we can ask and imagine. Amen. Isn't that the kind of life that you want to live? One that goes far beyond what you can imagine? One that's more amazing, more incredible, more blessed than your little mind can understand. And when I say your little mind, I'm not trying to offend. My little mind is probably slightly littler than your little minds out there. But God has a wonderful plan for us. And so as I prayed for a moment ago, you need to understand, we don't study the Bible for knowledge. We study the Bible for transformation. We get into the Word to have lives transformed and changed and altered. And the only way that that truly can happen, gang, in Bible study is if you're consistently with it. Stick to the Word, read through the Word, study the Word, be in the Word, day in and day out. And you will be transformed. God will alter you. We don't pray, by the way, to develop piety, to become more religious, or more self-righteous, or more impressive to other people. How many hours did you log this week? Well, 72. Right, it's a good week for me in the, in the prayer thing. You know, I was on my knees. My knees are pretty sore. In fact, I'm going to have to have knee replacement surgery because I've been praying so much. <laughs> That's the problem that Larry actually had. It was, you know, he was praying too much. That's why I had to get that surgery. That's not why we pray. We pray for relationship. So consider that. We study the Bible for transformation. We pray for relationship. God wants us to relate to Him, to be transformed into closer to His image, to be like Him. And by the way, we don't seek after the Holy Spirit for thrills, chills, and adventure. We seek the Holy Spirit of the living God. And hear me on this. Understand this. We seek the Spirit for power. And I'm not talking about power to stand up and knock someone down and go, Hey, be healed. Look at what I just did. I'm talking about the power, the dunamis. That's the Greek word for power in the Bible. The power to understand the Lord. The power to live in this life. The power to have influence on other people for Jesus Christ. The power to 
bring glory to Him. That's why we seek a spirit. It's why we pray. It's why we're in the Word. Transformed lives. Lives of relationship. Lives that are about power. And Paul says to him, be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations. He says, all the stuff that he can do that's beyond what we ask and what we think, it's according to the power, listen to this, that works within us. He didn't say it's according to the Spirit's power out there somewhere that might descend on us, if we're lucky, on a Sunday morning. He says it's according to the power that is already inside you. The power that is at work in you. And you go, wait a minute, my power? No, 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 no. His power. If you gave your life to Jesus, you know this, you understand. The Holy Spirit resides in you. He wants to empower you. And the power is right there. Well, this morning is our last study in the book of Numbers. It's all together. Heave a sigh of sorrow. <laughs> I have enjoyed this book. It's, it's been a tough one. It's been tougher than the previous books that we studied so far because it's all about wilderness and wandering and bad decisions and rebellion and rejection. But number 33, and that's what we're going to look at this morning, all 56 verses, so strap yourselves in. Numbers 33 reveals a bold and wonderful restatement of the theme of God's call on the children of Israel. The call that we looked a little bit at at the end last week. And that is the call to go and take the land. Go and take the land that the Lord has given you. Go forward in the promises that God has for you. Don't sit back. Don't be settlers. Don't be complacent. Don't settle for good enough. You go forward and take the land. Have you ever found yourself, though, in that place where you're not sure how to go forward? And you can come to a church on a Sunday morning, or you can come to a Bible study in the middle of the week, and you can hear a pastor say, Go forward, take the land. You go, Yes, yes, we're going to take the land. And you walk outside and you go, Take the land day. And by the time you get home, you go, How do we do that? I have no idea what to do next. I get phone calls from time to time from people saying, I don't know what to do next. I want to do what God wants me to do. I just don't know what that is. I'm not sure how to go forward and take the land. You know, the reality is we know that God's promises are trustworthy. We know that when He says He has more for us, you know, something inside of us says, yeah, I I think He truly does. I just don't know how to get there. I don't know how to trust myself with the things that He's entrusted to me. Well, I want you to consider two things today. Two kind of overarching principles as we look at Numbers 33. Number one, live in the walk. Live in the walk. I'll explain that in a moment. And number two, live for the win. And I don't mean W-I-N, I mean W-H-E-N. I guess it works either way. But live in the walk, live for the win. Let's pray one more time. Father, we ask that you will open our minds and prepare us to be transformed. We pray that your word will change us. We pray as we study through these verses that we will be altered, affected, that we would walk out of here different. And that process of change, Father, would not end when we close our Bibles this morning, but will be ongoing and life-changing. Lord, we know that just studying your word, that of ourselves we can't accomplish this. But your Spirit can. You've promised us that. And we ask and we call upon your Holy Spirit to teach us this morning and bring about transformation. In Jesus' name, amen. Part 1. Live in the walk. Live in the walk. Numbers 33, verse 1. 
These are the journeys of the sons of Israel by which they came out from the land of Egypt by their armies under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. Moses recorded their journeys, or their starting places, according to their journeys, by the command, and that word command is literally mouth, by the mouth of the Lord, and these are their journeys according to their starting places. Now this is important. We have chapter 33, by the direct command of God, by the mouth of God, saying, Moses, I want you to keep the journeys according to their starting places. Have you ever done that? Have you ever gone on a trip and taken along a journal and journaled your way through that trip? I did for the first time in January when we went to Israel. I journaled that whole trip. I I was looking back over the journal just the other day. Tel Aviv. The Mediterranean, Caesarea, Mount Carmel, Megiddo, Galilee, Capernaum, Arbel, Migdal, Golan Heights, Caesarea Philippi, Inherod, Masada, Engedi, Jerusalem, all these places, these were the headings throughout my journal. And I realized I had done exactly what God told Moses to do in chapter 33. I just went down and I wrote the heading of where I started out each morning. I wrote down thoughts and feelings and what I was seeing, what I was experiencing. I have a running journal that I can go back and and re-experience and think about what it was that happened on that trip. And that's exactly what's going on here in chapter 33. God says, I want a running journal. I want you to be able to look back and remember and think through where you've been, what's happened along the way in this this 40-year journey to the promised land. Verse 3, going on, it says, They journeyed from Ramses in the first month, that's in Egypt, on the 15th day of the first month, on the next day, after the Passover, the sons of Israel started out boldly in the sight of all the Egyptians. It's funny, they started out boldly, they ended up really shaky. In fact, after two years of traveling from the point that they left Ramses to when they got to the, the border of the promised land, they went from bold to we can't do it in two years. So they spent 38 years with the Lord teaching them how to do it. Going on, it says, verse 4, While the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them, the Lord also had executed judgments on their gods. Verse 5, Then the sons of Israel journeyed, they journeyed from Ramses, and camped in Sukkoth. Sukkoth, that's tent town. You might remember that. It's the first, first place they camped out. And it was a good first place, tent town. The place of pitching their tents. It was preparing them for what would be happening. You guys are going to be sojourners. You're going to be journeymen. You're going to be on the road. You're going to be travelers, pilgrims. And it's all going to begin in Sukkoth, which is tent town. They journeyed, verse 6, from Sukkoth and camped in Etham. Etham, some of you may recall, you Bible students, it means with them. They were right on the edge of the wilderness, looking out into the vast expanse of nothingness, wondering how they were going to find their way, but where they stopped before they went into the wilderness was Etham, with them. A reminder that when you head into the wilderness, God is with you. He doesn't send you all by yourself. He doesn't just send you out there. He goes with you. Well, verse 7 says, They journeyed from Etham, and they turned back to Pihahirod, which faces Baal's upon, and they camped before Migdal, Pihahirath means mouth of the caves. Migdal means tower. It was that place where they basically camped in a nowhere to run scenario. The Red Sea behind them and a small passageway before them and nowhere else to go. And the army of Egypt was coming through that exit pathway and behind them was only the Red Sea. It was their only way out. Well, without even, you know, batting an eye, verse 8 says they journeyed on from there before Hahirath and passed through the midst of the sea into the wilderness. Now, we've heard the story many times, but the this, this sentence there is amazing. They passed through the midst of the sea. 
They went through the Red Sea. It's just so commonplace with the Lord because remember, He can do far more than you can ask or imagine. I can't imagine a sea parting opening up and walking through it. Now maybe you can now because you've heard the story or you've seen the movie, but you can't imagine it if it's never happened before. And it had never happened before. But the sea parted and they walked through. It says they went three days' journey into the wilderness of Etham and they camped at a place called Mara. Mara means bitter or bitterness. They camped there, they were thirsty, they were parched, and when they came to Mara, there was a great pool of water. Great, we can go to we can go get some water here at this place. And they begin to take sips, and it's bitter and awful, probably poisonous, undrinkable water, and the people begin to cry out three days into the wilderness. This is how the journey begins. They're they're whining, they're crying, and the Lord says, Moses, why don't you chop down that tree and toss it into the water? And so Moses did that, and the water became sweet. Which is a very cool picture there of the cross. That when life gets bitter, you run to the cross, the tree. You put the tree in the water and the water becomes sweet. Well, it says, Then they journeyed from Mara and came to Elim. Elim means trees. And in Elim there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees and they camped there. And then they journeyed from Elim and camped by the Red Sea. And they journeyed from the Red Sea and they camped in the wilderness of Sin. Good name for it. They journeyed from the wilderness of Sin and camped in Dafka. And they journeyed from Dafka and camped at Elush. You remember all these places on the journey, don't you? <laughs> I didn't. They journeyed from Elush and camped at Rephidim. Now it was there that the people had no water to drink. So once again, they're thirsty. But they journeyed from Rephidim and camped in the wilderness of Sinai. They journeyed from the wilderness of Sinai and camped at Kibroth Hata'ava, which is interesting. Kibroth Hata'ava means graves of greed. Just as a little reminder of what happened there, Numbers 11.33, the story is they were hungry at Kibroth Hata'ava. They were, they were tired of the manna. They were whining and complaining about that. And they said, we want meat. We want some good meat. You ever, you ever been in that mood? You just wanted a steak. You're in the mood for a steak dinner. You wanted to seek your teeth into a juicy steak. And so you may go out to dinner with, with a friend or a husband or a wife. And you sit down and you take that first bite of steak. And it's so good. And it's juicy. And it's hot. And about five or six bites into it, you start going... And it starts to stick in the teeth. And after about seven or eight bites, you start to get full and that meat's sitting heavy. And you think about all the undigested red meat that's going to be in your bowels for the next two and a half years. (laughs) And it just starts to get gross. You get down to that last little hunk, a quarter of steak there, and you go, "Uh, can I have a doggy bag? And then you take it home, put it in the refrigerator, and about two weeks later you throw it out. We all do that, right? Well, listen to this. Numbers 11.33. While the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, they had a mouthful of quail meat, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very severe plague. So the name of that place was called Kibroth Hataava, because they buried the people who had been greedy. We want more meat, more stuff. I don't have enough, Lord, of what I want. I want more flesh, which is the biggest problem we have as Christians, as people in the world, is we just keep wanting more flesh until it starts to stick in our teeth. It's not worth much. Well... That's the problem with the flesh. It often begins tasting great, but later it makes you sick. Psalm 106, verse 14. The Lord said, They lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert, and He gave them their request. You want meat? You got meat. But the Bible tells us, 
along with their requests, the Lord sent leanness into their soul. Galatians 6a says, For one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And so through all of these places, you could just you could just earmark Numbers 33 as a great place to go because there are so many object lessons, so many things that we have seen that Israel went through. And remember, the New Testament tells us the Old Testament stories are there so that we could benefit, so that we could learn and understand by them. But going on, verse 17 then tells us they journeyed from Kibroth Pataava and camped at Hazaroth. They journeyed from Hazaroth and camped at Rithma. They journeyed from Rithma and camped at Rimon Perez. Transformational stuff, isn't it? Keep going. They camped from Rimon Perez and camped at Libna. They journeyed from Libna and camped at Risa. They journeyed from Risa and they camped at Kehelapha. <laughs> they journeyed from Kehelapha and camped at Mount Shafer. They journeyed from Mount Shafer and camped at Harada. They journeyed from Harada and camped at Makhelah. They journeyed from Makhelah and they camped at Tahath. Not Tahoe, this is Tahath. They journeyed from Tahath and they camped at Terah. And from Terah they go to Mitzah, and from Mitzah to Hashmonah, and then Maserat, and Bene Jeachin, and Hor Hagidad, and Jagbatha, and Abrona, and finally, verse 35, Ezi and Deber. That's right. And then watch this. This is interesting. Verse 36 says, They journeyed from Ezi and Geber and camped in the wilderness of Zen, that is, Kadesh. Kadesh. Kadesh should be a buzzword that sticks in your minds when you're studying the Word of God. Kadesh is the boundary of the Promised Land. Right on the border. Then verse 37 says they journeyed from Kadesh and camped at Mount Hor at the edge of the land of Edom. Now then Aaron, verse 38, went up to Mount Hor at the command of the Lord and died there in the 40th year after the sons of Israel had come from the land of Egypt on the first day in the fifth month. Aaron was 123 years old when he died on Mount Hor. Now the Canaanites, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev and in the land of Canaan, heard of the coming of the sons of Israel. And then they journeyed from Mount Horn, they camped at Zalmona. From there they go to Punon and Oboth and Ai Abarim at the border of Moab. And they journeyed from Ayin and camped at Dibon Gad. And from Dibon Gad, verse 46, to Almond Diblatham. And then from there on to Abarim in verse 47 before Nebo. Verse 48, they journeyed from the mountains of Abarim and camped in the plains of Moab by the Jordan opposite Jericho. Verse 49, they camped by the Jordan from Beth Jeshimoth as far as Abel Shittim in the plains of Moab. There it is. There it is. It's the scrapbook of their 40-year travels before us. What's the point of all this? Numbers, Numbers is a book of counting. It begins with God counting all the able-bodied men, ages 20 and older, ready for war. It ends with God counting again all the able-bodied men of now the new generation who can fight in battles. It's a book of counting. Here Moses now accounts for the entire history of their travels, 40 years in one chapter, one place to the next, to the next, to the next. Why did we go through all these names? Why read all this stuff? Listen carefully. Listen. Because God remembers where you've been. I don't know how many people of Israel at this point, if asked, could have recounted 40 years of traveling from place to place to place to place. God knows every single one. Every campsite, every stop along the road, 
Every tiny roadside stand, God remembers every single one. You think the Lord missed any of your struggles when you were growing up? You think the Lord doesn't realize what happened to you in your past that may have been so painful? You think the Lord is unaware and needs you to tell Him what it is that you did just last week or last month or last year? God knows where we've been. We think at times we've been forgotten or missed by the Lord, but He knows exactly where we are, where we have been. He he knows the heartaches, the struggles. Those things are not lost on God. He remembers every single one. And we go through here, I'm trying to read off names that I can barely pronounce, but God knows every one. He remembers every instance of our lives, from skinned knees to broken bones to broken hearts to battered lives. God hasn't missed a thing. He was there, gentlemen, when, when your father kind of sat on you with his thumb and, and was hard on you, didn't listen to you, didn't seem to care. He was there. He was there, ladies, when you were abused by maybe that boyfriend in high school. Or worse, he was there for every single one of us at every stop along the way. And Isaiah 42 verse 3 tells us a great thought. A bruised reed he will not break. And a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He hasn't missed a thing. Graham Cook explains it this way. (laughs) He says, God is not linear. We're linear. We tend to think in terms of a straight line. These things happen back here. Here I am and stuff's going to happen in front of me. And we walk this straight line. God is not bound by time. He is circular. He is in cycles. He, He sees things in the big picture. He is the beginning and the end, which means everything begins and ends with Him. On a vast, grand, glorified circle that is the Lord. First in Genesis 1.1 in the Bible we see this. In the beginning, God. So it starts with Him. The very middle of the Bible, the center verse, Psalm 118.8 says, It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. There He is, right in the middle. And He is at the very end as well. Revelation 22.20 Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. He's at the beginning. He's at the end. Everything begins with Him and ends with Him. By the way, even your faith. Amen. God gives you the faith to believe in Him. The fact that you can stand up as Peter did and say, Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. Jesus said, well... Peter, you're not bright enough to figure that one out on your own. My father told you to say that. And when I confess Jesus is Lord, it came from the Lord. It begins with Him. It ends with Him. He is in the whole picture. My life began with Him. My life will end with Him. It flows through Him. It ends with Him. He just doesn't lose track of where I am. Now, I get lost and I stumble around, but God is like the really tall dad in the department store who can see over the rounders and he knows right where his kids are at all times, even though they can't see him. <laughs> the clothes get in the way, the stuff, the, 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 the racks, and I can't, where's dad? And I'm running around looking for him. That never happened to you? That happened to me when I was a kid. God remembers that. I was in the department store I lost track of my parents in fact it happened numerous times you know you kind of wander off and the next thing you turn around and, like, and all you see is legs you know and you're grabbing other people's legs you look up oh that's not my dad you know? 
but my parents always seemed to know where I was. That's the Lord. Ezekiel 34.11 For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep. I will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. I know where you've been, and I'm going to find you, and I'm going to bring you out. 1 Peter 5, 6 Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting your anxiety on Him, because He cares for you. He knows where you've been. He knows where you are. He knows where you're going. Isaiah 49:15. I love this verse. Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. God says, I remember you. I think about you more passionately, more intimately than a mother nursing her baby. Those of you moms with young children, you know exactly how intimate that is. Well, you're going to forget that you might fall asleep in the middle of the night while you're nursing, but you're not going to forget. Eventually, God says, even though one of these forget, I will not forget. He says, behold, I've inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Which means when God looks at his hands, your name is there. In fact, when Jesus looks at his hands, your name is there right next to nail prints. And there's a connection as far as he's concerned. Hebrews 13 verse 5 For he himself has said I will never desert you Can you you just repeat that after me I will never desert you That's what the Lord says about you I'm not going to desert you Nor will I forsake you And the Hebrew writer says We can now confidently say The Lord is my helper I will not be afraid He remembers where I've been He knows everything that I have gone through He's aware of it And it doesn't matter how good it was or how bad it was or how ugly it was. He has not forgotten. In fact, He remembers your past so that you don't have to. He remembers all the stuff you've been through so that you can let it go. So that you can walk with Him. If you go back to the past, God is there. Look forward to the future, God is there. But most of all, most of all, and don't miss this, He's right here. He is right here. And He wants you and I to live in the walk. To live in the walk with each step that we take to walk with Him. To live with Him. To press into the journey. You see, we don't think like that. We don't think like that. We think, I want to get there. It's a little Graham Cook thing. For those of you guys who are listening to him right now. Kind of a guy to listen to. Graham Cook. And he says... He says, press in, even if it's painful right now. Because that's where God has you. And that's where God meets you. And that's where He wants to be with you. But there is something breathtaking here that God forgets. Because He remembers all these things, the stop-offs on the journey, everything that's ever occurred in your life, He remembers. But number two, He forgets about your sin. And this is absolutely stunning. Look again at verses 36 and 37. Where they journeyed from Ezion Geber and camped in the wilderness of Zin, that is Kadesh. And then they journeyed, verse 37, from Kadesh and camped at Mount Hor at the edge of the land of Edom. Do you realize what happens between those two verses? 38 years happens between those two verses. God skips 38 years. He recounts two years of travel 
from Egypt to the promised land and he skips in his record 38 years of rebellion in the wilderness that stuff God says I don't remember that is that awesome? I don't remember those journeys in the wilderness those 38 years when you were such a mess Israel when you were paying the penalty for your, for your rebellion I don't remember but I've forgotten 38 years between two verses and during that time, I can think back about it. In fact, we've been studying it in the book of Numbers. The people murmured about the manna. They groused about the quail. They refused to enter the land of Egypt after ten of the spies came back and said, Oh, we can't go in. Tough spies. Bold spies. And Joshua, and Caleb, Joshua and Caleb said, Hey, we can go in. We can do this. No, no, they couldn't do it. Their hearts failed them. We studied and we've seen in the book of Numbers, Korah's Rebellion. We've seen the bronze serpent where the people had to look at that just, just to be saved because they were so rebellious. And the compromise of Balaam and the Israelites going with the Moabite women and mixing it all up. We saw that mess, the sin at Peor. And just last week, Reuben, Gad, and even half of Manasseh wanting to settle short of the promise. That's my review of the last 38 years of Israel's time in the wilderness. God skips right over it. He just skips it in those two verses. Because he remembers where we've been, but he forgets about our sin. He remembers where we've been, but forgets about our sin. Isaiah 44, Remember these things, O Jacob, O Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud, and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me. For I have redeemed you. Shout for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout joyfully, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into a shout of joy, you mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob. Listen, and in Israel, he shows forth his glory. Now you might say, great, it's one of those Old Testament Israel passages that has nothing to do with me. Who was it? Someone just recently asked me that question. Can I apply passages in Isaiah that were for Israel does that apply to me it seems to me that it's for Israel listen to the last line of this verse again in Israel he shows forth his glory his glory that word for glory it means substance and weight in other words in Israel he shows forth who he is in his relationship with Israel over the years, and we'll continue to see this setting through the Old Testament, we see who God is. And who God is is a redemptive, faithful, loving, compassionate God who knows where you've been and forgets about your sin. That's who God is. So yes, these things apply to us. Because that's who He is. And Psalm 103 verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. Jeremiah 31.34 says, They'll not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. He forgets our sin. Incredible. And by the way, Jeremiah's verse that I just read speaks not of the Old Covenant, but of the New Covenant that God makes with anyone who comes to Him through Jesus Christ. How do we know that? Because the Hebrew writer tells us that in the New Testament. That applies to you. The New Covenant. This powerful truth gang. He remembers where I've been, forgets about my sin. It teaches me to live in the walk. Because He doesn't remember how I sinned last week. 
And he does remember how I struggled last week. And so I can walk day to day knowing that I am forgiven, knowing that I am covered, knowing that I am cared for and visited by the Lord. Every day I can make that walk. But it is about living in the walk. How many people have seen Cars? The movie. Okay. The rest of you, go see it. Believe it. It's Pixar. Disney. Come on. No. It's a great movie. But it's a great movie because there's a message that, that's kind of hidden in it and you start to figure out as the movie goes along that's wonderful. The cars are all talking at one point. They're in this little town in the middle of nowhere by Route 66, which no one travels anymore. Why don't people travel Route 66 anymore? Because you can get there faster on the freeways. Route 66 takes too long. And one of the little cars, I don't remember which one, it's not that important, but says to another little car, at one point in the movie, no one wants to go for the journey anymore. It's all about getting there. It's all about getting there. And when it's all about getting there, we miss what he's doing on the journey. Now, i got to tell you something, gang. I love the getting there. I talk a lot about the getting there. The Lord wants us to be ready for the getting there. But at the same time, He wants us to live now in Him, in the journey. God, what are you doing in my life today? What is this struggle about? What is this stress that I'm feeling? What is this hardship for? Why am I so happy? (laughs) What is happening right now in the journey today? And I want to cross that finish line. The Lord wants to take me on a family trip. And most of us are like I was as a kid. When we went on family trips, I got the pillow and the blanket. This was back in the days before seatbelts. And I just laid down on the seat and saw America on my back. I had no idea where we went. Something about a you know mammoth ball of twine or something. I think I remember seeing that out the window as we drove by. And my parents were like, look at that, look at that, look at that. And now I do the same thing. We get in the car and my like, kids, look at it. It's beautiful. Check this out. And they're like... <laughs> And we're missing the journey. And the journey is now. Live, live in the walk. Because God remembers where we've been and forgets about our sin, but He promises, check this out, He promises to lead us in. And knowing that allows me to live in the journey today. Read on verse 50. Then the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan opposite Jericho. Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When? I would suggest you underline that, circle it, highlight it, put little happy faces by it. Listen to what he says. When you cross over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then. It's not if. It's when. Because God deals in when-then teaching. When-then thinking. Not if-then The end result, the finish line, it's already been crossed. It's already a done deal. So I can live in the journey. I can settle into the journey. Not settle for life, but I can focus on what God's doing right now. Because I know what's coming is coming. It's a done deal. And that's part two this morning. Not just living in the walk. Live for the win. Live for the wind. Live for that time when we will go forward, when we will go into the land, when we will have our inheritance. Israel, the Lord says, you will cross over, you will take the land, you will receive my promises. It's a done deal. Look at verse 53. He says, you shall take possession of the land and live in it, for I have given the land to you to possess it. They're not in the land. They don't have ownership of it except by the word of the Lord. 
The Israelites are camped out on this side of the Jordan and they're looking across and it looks pretty good, God, but we're not there. God says, yes, you are. No, we're not. Yes, you are. No, we're right here. Yes, but I've already given it to you. It's just yours to take. Go, take it. Live for, live for the win. Our reservations are confirmed. It's not an if. It's a win. King, I already know the destination. And I'm guaranteed transformation so I can boldly live out the realization of His Word for me, which is what? That in Him, Ephesians 1.13, listen to this, after listening to the message of truth, that is the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as our pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. So living for the wind strengthens me to live in the walk. Do you see that wonderful divine tension there? That I am to live in the walk, but I am to live for the wind. I am to enjoy the journey. I am to learn in the journey and find transformation in the journey, but... I'm also to live for the win. Knowing He's coming. Knowing He's going to call my name. Knowing I'm going to be whipped up out of here in a second. It's going to be wonderful. More than I can ask or imagine. Now, quickly, look at what God tells Israel to do with this guaranteed inheritance. Back in verse 51. Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you cross over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall, and He tells them three things to do here. Number one, drive out all the inhabitants of the land before you. And number two, destroy all their molten figures and destroy all their molten images. Or sorry, all their figured stones and their molten images. And number three, demolish all their high places. What's going on here? God says, number one, drive out the land lovers. Drive out the land lovers. Look down at verse 55. He says, if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come about that those whom you let remain of them will become as pricks in your eyes. Literally, that's cattle prods in your eyes. And as thorns in your side, and they will trouble you in the land in which you live. He says, drive out the land lovers. Drive out those who are settled in the land. Now, historically speaking... That's exactly what happened to Israel. Both then and now. Both when they took the land the first time and even right now as we watch on the world scene, what is Israel doing? They are continuing to give up their inheritance. They are continuing to hand over their inheritance. To shrink back from it. That's the problem they're in today. And the more land that Israel relinquishes to the squatters... Ooh, Rick, that's kind of politically incorrect. Thank you. The more Israel relinquishes to those who don't deserve to have the land, the worse the problem gets. Have you noticed that? As the nation of Israel shrinks, the problem intensifies. They haven't learned quite yet. But spiritually speaking, there is a marked contrast between those who dwell on the earth and those who inhabit the earth. I want you to see something quickly. It's in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. Those of you who have gone through the Revelation study, you might remember this. But it's critical in living for the wind and it's critical in living in the walk. Revelation 13.8 tells us, All who dwell on the earth will worship Him. And I think, oh, cool, that's great. No, the Him is Antichrist. All who dwell on the earth will worship Antichrist, the beast. 
Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of the of life of the Lamb who has been slain. All who dwell on the earth will worship Him. All who dwell on the earth will worship Him. And there's something stunning in this verse because the word dwell is probably not the best translation. In John 1, verse, about verse 14, tells us the word Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. And the word for dwell there, you may recall, is tabernacled, pitched his tent, set up his temporary dwelling. He came and tabernacled among us, short term, pitched his tent. But in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, all who dwell on the earth, the word dwell there, the word dwell is katoikeo. Katoikeo, which means literally to make a permanent home. Which is why all who dwell on the earth will worship the beast, will worship Antichrist. Anyone who makes this place their permanent home. I don't care how beautiful a day it is out there. Today when you go home, make sure that your home is not a permanent home. Amen. Don't get so comfortable in where we are in this world that we go, this is good enough. This is great. This is where I'm supposed to be. Satan is about comfort zones. He is about carnality. He is all about settling. And I am not a settler. I'm a sojourner. And so as as I'm living in the walk, as I'm walking and journeying with Jesus and learning and growing and being transformed through that walk, I am also not a settler. I'm a sojourner. I am heading through for the win. Living in the walk, but living for the win. That day when Jesus will pull me out, will take me home. Man, it energizes me for the journey. It gives me focus in the struggles. It purifies me, John says, even as he himself is pure. So drive out the land lovers. So how do I, wait a minute, so, I mean, that sounds almost Muslimish. That's, that's Islam, by the way. You know that. It's either convert or die. Convert or you're driven out. And God says to Israel here, drive out the landlubbers. How does that apply to me spiritually? It's very easy. You want to drive out the settler in people. Drive out the settler in those around you. How do I do that? Tell them about Jesus. Because the more I know about Jesus, the less settled I am here and the more I want to go to that place He's prepared for me. Tell them about Jesus. Point them to the Father in Heaven. And when they get it, they won't want to stay here. 2 Corinthians 4.18 tells us, We look not at things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, temporary. But the things which are not seen are eternal. He also says, Destroy their figured stones and molten images, and demolish their high places. The figured stones, the molten images, all the false images that we're bombarded with in the world in which we live. Hollywood and special effects. You you realize that CGI animation is so good now that there's really no need for imagination anymore? Even in the past when you go to the movies and you'd watch something on the screen, okay, I can tell that verb was not really there before. You know, I mean, he's not really pecking out her eyes. For those of you saw Alfred Hitchcock, the birds, the special effects are lame. You look at the old movies; they're really lame. So you had to use a little imagination just to get through the movie. You don't have to anymore. You just sit back and go. I don't need imagination because the figured stones and the molten images are so precise 
The figured stones are the things mankind thinks in its wisdom and their arrogance that it's figured out. Now we figured out how to stand strong in this world. The molten images, hot pictures, delicious images, distractions from the beauty of Jesus Christ. Anything in my life that might take my eyes off the wind, destroy it. And he says demolish their high places because just taking care of all of the idols and images is not enough. It's not enough. You've got to destroy the high places so that you don't have somewhere to go to experience the things of the world. We often use the phrase, don't even go there, but you can't go there when there's no there there. <laughs> you can write that down and figure it out later. Demolish the very locations that might deny your inheritance. Like what? Like what are some places I should demolish? I'm not going to tell you. I sat down as I was studying and I started making a list of high places. Things that were problematic or might be problematic among us. And the Lord said, don't do that. Because they know. You know what your high places are. Every one of us, we know those places that we like to run to when no one's looking. We know those places that we rely on that take us away from the Lord. You know what they are. Deal with them. Demolish them. Get rid of them. Jesus says, Matthew 6.19, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and there no thieves break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's living for the wind. I live in the walk. I experience the journey, but I live for the wind when he will call me home. Verse 54, God says, you shall inherit the land. And at the end of verse 54, you shall inherit according to the tribes of your fathers. It's a done deal. God remembers where we've been. He forgets about our sin and he promises to lead us in. And the power of that promise is that you will inherit. So live in the walk. Live for the win. Because God, God is going to do it. It all begins and ends with Him. Let's pray. Lord, I, I want to begin by thanking You for remembering God, for looking back over the trails and the highways of my life and not forgetting a thing. God, we have all been in that place in our lives where we cry out, does anybody have any idea what, what we've been through? Where we think we're alone, that nobody knows what we've experienced. But you were there. You were there, Lord. You were there when we were lost. And you were there when we were alone. You were there when we were frightened. You were there when the wind was blowing so hard. We didn't think the house would stand. You were there when we were confused when we didn't know how to take the next step. You were there when we were heartbroken, suffering a pain that we couldn't imagine anybody could know. You were there. 
You were there. And when we cried, Father, you held us. And when we thought we couldn't make it to the next day, you covered us. And you powerfully and beautifully remind us this morning that you were there. Lord you're among us and you know things in our hearts that nobody else here knows I know I draw incredible comfort from that Father because as I try to do my job as a pastor I feel so clueless as to the hurts and needs of people of this body this fellowship but to know that you know